This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show was Joe Dyer. Joe is an independent political candidate running for the seat of Boothby in South Australia at the upcoming federal election. Joe talks to me about her essay-length book, Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. Joe speaks about how federal politics went awry and how we can reconstruct it. She also talks about the growing movement of independents putting their hand up to run for parliament. Then, Dr David Brophy joined me. David is a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney. He joined me to discuss his book, China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering. We discuss the contents of his book in depth in the context of an upcoming federal election, a relationship between Australia and China that is already at an all-time low, and the recent escalating rhetoric and language from the coalition government on China. David talks about the foreign policy consequences of this, but more importantly, he also talks about the societal effects, which include a concerning growing anti-Chinese racism. Then, finally, Felicity Watson, Advocacy Manager at the National Trust of Australia in Victoria, shares why we need to save the John Curtin Hotel in Carlton. Felicity takes us through the broader conservation and heritage situation in Victoria and how we can protect other heritage pubs and buildings in Melbourne with significant social and cultural value. We're going to be talking about a topic that is very, very important to, I think, everyone who would be listening right now, whether they realise it or not, and that is the state of politics in Australia because, as we have discovered through this pandemic, political decision-making does truly affect all of us and it has real-life consequences. I'm going to be joined right now, in fact, by Jo Dyer. She is an independent candidate running for the seat of Boothby in South Australia at the federal level. And she's also a cultural curator and uh, she's been known to be and is outgoing artistic director of the Adelaide Writers' Festival and uh, has had a depth of experience and breadth in the cultural sector in general. And Joe has written a book. It's out through uh, Monash University Publishing. It's called Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. And we're going to be discussing how politics has gone wrong and what we can do to, as is said in the title, reconstruct modern politics. So I welcome Joe now. Hi there, Joe, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure. I'm really excited to talk about this book and also about independence because I think they are really the unsung heroes of politics and have been for quite a while and perhaps they've been sneaking under the radar a little bit, but now they are front and centre in terms of the numbers of people who are running as independents uh, in local seats at this upcoming federal election. So it's very exciting to see that you're putting your hat in the ring, but also that you're part of this broader movement. Look, that's absolutely right. There does seem to be a moment in Australian politics like we haven't had before, where there's actually a critical mass of independents running in seats that actually are in with a chance. 
um, for the first time, they seem to be attracting interest from the broader population and not being an outlier, a rarity that you've seen pop up in, say, Tasmania with Andrew Wilkie or here in, in South Australia, Rebecca Sharkey was elected, although initially under the Central Alliance banner. Now it is sort of across the country that people are giving them a second look and thinking of them as a real alternative uh, because there really is, whilst we are not linked in any formal way, I think we can all see that if only a few more of us, um, if we assume that Andrew Wilkie, Rebecca Sharkey, Zali Segal, Helen Haynes get re-elected, which I think we can assume because the interesting thing about independence is that whilst it's incredibly hard to get elected in the first place, when you're against the might of the major parties, the funding that they have, the brand that they have so that individual candidates don't have their work cut out for them in the same way as independence. But if they can climb that tall mountain and get elected for the first time, communities seem to really embrace them and stay with them. So independents can have a long time in Parliament if they can get in for the first time. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic that all of the current independents will be re-elected and it would only take another two or three and the balance of power is well and truly up for grabs. It is such a polarised electorate at the moment. We've had very close elections for the last few elections now in both 13 and, uh, well, 16 and 19 in particular. So with a close election, a few more independents, that balance of power can be held by people who are there for all the right reasons and who are really only there to advance the common good and support evidence-based rational policies and it could just really transform the whole political landscape and the way that we actually practice our politics. It is an exciting time, I think. Oh, Joe, it sounds like utter chaos. I mean, what's going to happen if the two major parties get <laughs> thrown off their chairs? We get told by them in you know all these op-eds over the last couple of months that the sky is going to fall in if all these independents get in and, and the two major parties are forced to negotiate. Well, yes, imagine that, having to actually negotiate with people who are there to listen uh, attentively and who really only want what is good for the country if they have to actually persuade people um, that the policies that they're advancing are going to be good for individual electorates and are going to be good for the wider nation. I mean, wouldn't that be such a radical thing? And look, the thing is, is that there are coalition governments all over the world. We're in that mm. coalition government right now. We have been for years. Um, so the idea that this is somehow going to be a recipe for chaos is simply not borne out by the international examples and indeed Australia's own examples, quite apart from the fact that at Federation, for the first few governments, we, we had coalitions. Despite all the publicity around the minority Gillard government, it was one of the most productive governments and parliaments that we have ever had. The chaos was actually all on the Labor side to do with the sort of internecine warfare that going on between the Rudd, well, particularly being launched by the Rudd camp. It wasn't the case that actually having independence there as part of minority government caused any kind of chaos. It actually just caused much more care and attention to be paid to each individual piece of legislation. And we had some really great reforms that were enacted by the minority Gillard government. In a way, I have to say that we have not seen by the subsequent coalition government. Well, I mean, you you bring up that past example, which I had in my mind when we were just talking there. It reminds me of those independents, Rob Oakeshott, Tony Windsor, and at the time, Bob Catter. 
Tony Windsor, I certainly am still a massive fan of, and he um, still tweets to this day and provides his always insightful and forceful views, which um, are always really true and uh, poignant about politics. But it did remind me that we did actually get to a very good place with that bunch of really men in that example on policy and that they were taking each policy as it came to them and considering things, weighing things up in a very measured and even way. But we did see parts of the media try and um, whip up this kind of hysteria around the fact that the Gillard government are being beholden to just these three people and it's uh, so undemocratic for the whole of society to be um, dictated by just three people. So I wonder... Well, first of all, what are your thoughts on that? But also, it's interesting that they were three men and now we're looking at a lot of women in particular running at the moment. Look, that's exactly true. I mean, look, the media is trying to whip up a whole lot of hysteria in all sorts of ways, particularly the Murdoch media, but actually not exclusively. Um, Some of the nine media, too, seem to have a real bee in their bonnet around Climate 200, for example, and those sorts of... trying to really paint us all as if we are, A, a political party, which we are certainly not, and B, that there is somehow something sinister about accepting money from people who are concerned about climate change and who want to take action on climate change. Look, I think the thing is, is with Tony Windsor, Rob Oakeshott, people like that, they're honourable people. You know, they were there for the right reasons. We're not being held hostage by them as individuals, we were going through a rational policy development process by people who were concerned about outcomes for the greater good. That is actually in stark distinction, I must say, to the kind of hostage uh, taking that the nationals were doing when we were trying to develop some kind of rational policy on climate change. We watched Scott Morrison have to stand in the corridor waiting for the crazy nationals to make up their mind as to whether or not they wanted to save the world. And when they did, they came up with not an actual policy, they came up with a sentence and a pamphlet. Now, that is actually being held hostage by a minority of people. Most of Australia has for decades wanted to take meaningful action on climate change. We see that in every single poll that develops. And let's not forget that back in the 2007 election, we actually had a bipartisan support for emissions reduction scheme. That went out the window with Tony Abbott, and it went out the window for purely political reasons. You don't have to believe me. That's what his chief of staff said. They decided to weaponise climate change for political ends. And that's where we've been stuck ever since. The rest of the world has moved on. The rest of the world, with governments of either political persuasion, are actually grappling with the biggest, most existential crisis that has confronted humanity. Here in Australia, we've still got slogans, we've still got stupid political positions being thrown around, and we're sitting outside in a corridor whilst people like the Nationals, like Matt Canavan, like Barnaby Joyce, uh, determine our future. And that, to me, is the real crime here. Not that a range of, as you say, particularly women who are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. I mean, they don't need politics in their life. They're not the apparatchiks that have been groomed since university, going through as staffers, waiting to be able to put up their hands, be tapped on the back by a factional power broker. They don't need any of that. They all have successful careers and they all have pretty good lives from what I can tell. But they have been moved to act. 
there has been a compulsion that they, and, and indeed, I don't know why I say they, I think it's a distancing kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of security blanket to think, my God, is it really me? Am I doing this crazy thing? But we have been moved to act, I think, because of the urgency of the situation in which we find ourselves and because of the paucity of leadership that we have seen on offer from both sides of the political fence. Absolutely. And you did just use the royal we just there. So I'll jump, I'll jump in there. But <laughs> it's great that you are um, putting your hand up. And I'm so glad to see so many women doing that, because as we have heard, politics has traditionally and still is not a very positive place for women. And it certainly can be exceptionally hostile at the best of times. So looking at the women that you're standing up alongside, I mean, there's obviously a a very prominent journalist, um, Zoe Daniel, who's running, but there are a whole range of other women who are putting up their hand, Dr. Monique Ryan in Kuyong. Like, these are, as you say, women who have careers in such a, a range of professions. I wonder if you could even share what you're inspired by from these other women as well. I just saw that you um, you did do a photo shoot together, so you must have um, had a chance to catch up. Well, actually, that photo shoot was done in a socially distanced way. Each of us only caught up with one other person. So my shoot was with Penny Ackery, who's a fantastic candidate standing against you know, scandal magnet that is Angus Taylor, who, you know, was parachuted in, I think, from Vaucluse uh, into his seat around Goulburn and now, you know, parades around in his cosplay of a rural chap, uh, sort of a, a man of the farm. And she's a really wonderful candidate who, again, it's comes from the community and will be beholden only to the community if elected. I think the thing about the range of women that are running is that there is a safety in numbers, I think. You can look around and you can feel um, reassured that you're not really out there alone and behind the scenes there is some, you know, reassurance being provided and tips being uh, by campaign managers and that kind of thing. But, you know, you do have to run your own race as well because it's just it's hard slog. You just have to try and be out there as much as possible and introduce yourself to voters because you don't have that security of the Labor brand or the Liberal brand, which for many voters is a default position to which they'll snap back in that polling booth. They'll think, who's that? Who's that? I don't know that person. Oh, Labor, I know them. Or, oh, I mm. can't imagine many people choosing Liberal this time round after the, the you know, really poor government that we've had for the last few years. But it is still, as I say, a very high amount to climb to be elected as an independent. But there is something about that weight of numbers, it does feel like there could be a tipping point. And because it is a movement, there is more publicity around it. We're building a greater profile of the idea of doing something different. Um, You know, I've been saying that if you want things to be different, you actually have to do something different. And what you can do is not underestimate the power of your vote and use it creatively. Um, We're lucky here in Australia to have the preferential voting system. So there is no wasted vote. Um, The idea of per se, a vote for an independent being um, a wasted vote, I think is just has been demonstrated to be untrue by the calibre of the independents that we've had elected to parliament. They get things done. And these are independents that are hold, that are on the crossbench at the moment are getting things done without holding the balance of power. They're just standing up and arguing their case. They've changed 
the agenda. They've changed the debate. And in some cases, like recently, as we saw with Rebecca Sharkey's amendments to the Religious Discrimination Act that were passed, they're actually changing the law. So they're doing things already. They're attracting attention to their electorates. Of course, in this day and age of the pork barrel, there's actually money being tipped into electorates that their government um, are hoping to wrest back from independence. So they're already doing great things for their community. But with these tipping points, with this potential critical mass, if the balance of power is secured by the independence, and as I say, it could only take the election of two or three more for that to happen, then I do believe that will be quite transformational because we all do have very key points that would need to be addressed and discussed and agreed before either party would attract our support to form government. And first and foremost, that is obviously taking really strong and ambitious action on climate change. We've got Mike Cannon-Brooks there as an example showing what can be done. We've got Saul Griffith there really detailing, well, in great detail, what can be done right here and now. The climate change isn't in the future It is now. But equally, the solutions that we need to implement to transition to a different kind of economy and a different kind of society are also here now. We're just ignoring them for ideological reasons because this government is captured by the fossil fuel industry and the Labor Party is so scared of the dark art of the wedge that they don't want to be bold and ambitious. They just want to slip back into government. And they would be better than the current government that we have, I make no bones about that. I do think that we need to kind of reset um, because we've become so mired in toxicity. But neither of the parties are being as bold as we know we need to be to ensure sustainable living on this planet. So that would be the first kind of plank that would need to be discussed and agreed with the independents were they to hold the balance of power. And then there, of course, are other very key issues around integrity, respect for women, and for me also equity and the way that we look after our most vulnerable people and in our community. Well, I'm very glad you say equity because that's um, certainly something that we focus on here on this show. And it's um, it's something that you bring up in the book as well. And I think um, I'll bring that up in just a moment. But before we jump across to some of the different policy areas that you raise and where we've kind of been going wrong, I did want to, to just circle back to your seat for just one moment here or the, the seat you're running for. I was interested to read, given I, I'm not a Adelaidean or South Australian, so I'm not au fait with all of the seats over in South Australia, but I was interested to know that it was actually or is the most marginal seat in South Australia and the third most marginal seat in the country. So for someone who is running as an independent, surely that is still a good sign for you. Uh, Obviously, it means that Labor is in with a chance, the Liberals are, and yourself. And I saw that you had a campaign launch over the weekend. So what are you doing as a political candidate um, in terms of, you know, making yourself known to your local community? And also, how are you building the set of policies that you stand for that will represent your community? Because I know that each independent has, you know, a different way of doing things. And people like Kathy McGowan had, you know, kitchen cabinet type discussions around the table. So I was wondering what your approach has been. Well, look, my approach really is sort of anything and everything. It, it really is a numbers game. So 
So our agenda is to just get out there and meet as many voters as is humanly possible. Um, the kitchen table conversations that Cathy McGowan used to such great effect in Indi, that has become a bit of a model for these voices of community organisations that had spread across the country. One of the volunteers who was working on the Warringah campaign, um, and I referenced this uh, in the book as well, she talked about when she was being trained up by Al Gore or the, you know, the Al Gore organisation when An Inconvenient Truth first came out. And for what they talked about as part of the Inconvenient Truth training for people to go out and start spreading the word and seeking to persuade people about the risks of global warming. They talked about lighthouse projects. So it's a project that happens, and after it happens, it sort of projects a light across the country and people can imagine something that they couldn't imagine before. There is a light that they can follow. Uh, and I think Cathy McGowan became that for so many independents. So people have scrutinised quite closely how it was that she went about it. And those kitchen table um, conversations actually came from the Mary Crooks at the Victorian Women's Trust in the first instance. Um, it was about going into homes and really engaging in an intimate way with voters, with the community, and talking to them about what they loved about their community, um, what they thought about their current representation, and what their ideal political representative might look like. And through those sorts of conversations, there was a wealth of knowledge being generated by what went on to become the grassroots community political movement that elected Cathy McGowan, but there was also seeding the idea in the minds of individuals that there was potentially a different way, that there is a power within the community, within the community's voice, and most importantly, within the community's vote. So they sort of pioneered this new way of, of doing things, which many of these organisations have followed in their footsteps. And I was, I've been endorsed by the Voices of Boothby and they had themselves conducted a range of kitchen table conversations over the last two years to highlight issues that were concerning them. So we've taken that research and we've done a bit more research of our own into what are the current issues that are of major concern to the people of Boothby. And, you know, surprise, surprise, they're the same sorts of issues as, as I've just been talking about. There's a real concern about climate change. Boothby is a slightly older uh, electorate by demographics, so there's great concern for the sort of future that we're going to be leaving behind for our children and for our grandchildren. Boothby is actually also a very civically minded electorate. They have a far higher percentage of the population who does things like volunteer, for example. So whilst there are some quite well-to-do people within Boothby, though the demographic is quite wide, we have people living on the beach, up in the hills, um, across the plains, so very different kind of lifestyles. They all do share a concern for each other and the wider community. Um, and that's really always been the building blocks of my politics, I guess. It's that this sort of incredulity that in a country as rich as Australia, we are not at a federal government level at the moment, a more generous, considerate, caring community. We have the resources to look after each of our fellow citizens at each stage of their lives, whether that's providing adequate childcare um, and early education when they're 
just born, whether it's ensuring that schools are funded on an equitable basis across the country so that everybody has access to the same fine education delivered by our same fine teachers, whether it's making sure that everybody has the same opportunity to get to university, to a well-funded university, which is offering a broad range of subjects across the curriculum, health systems that we need to access including dental care, including mental health care. Uh, and then particularly we have seen really the real tragedy in our aged care system over the course of this pandemic, which I think is something that we will look back on in shame. Uh, and I guess that is something that I raise a bit in the book, is that there are policy areas, and I just used the last two years as a snapshot to, to give that sort of bird's eye view of of what we've lived through, through this very kind of crazy time. But even within those two years, there are many areas of policy that I think Australians should be very ashamed of and for which there is no excuse in a rich, developed, highly educated country like ours. There's no excuse for some of the immoral, if not amoral, positions that we adopt politically and the consequences that we're prepared to live with for political gain at uh, the government level. And, you know, to me, it's not good enough. And I think that's what so many other independents are also thinking. It's not good enough. And we don't see a way to affect real change through the duopoly that is the major parties. No. And I mean, you had a lot of material to use to go from, um, even <laughs> just from the last two I years. I yes. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot that isn't in there. Well, I know there isn't. Um, it's not all in there. It couldn't possibly be because there's been so many scandals and so much grant schemes, quote unquote, that have gone to many liberal seats and marginal at that. So these are things that prop up in the news, people take note of them at the time, and then they kind of fall by the wayside and those with a long enough memory will remember and others may not and will move on and be, you know, maybe more preoccupied with issues that are directly relevant to their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, you know, that is just a, an interesting point there that in mm. the book, because, look, it's a small book, it's um, part of the International Interest Series of Monash University Publishing, so it's, it's almost more as an extended essay than a book itself. Well, that's what I was saying to myself when I was writing I to reassure myself, because now it's written, I only ever recall the book. Um, <laughs> but the interesting thing is that because they are, you know, fairly modest in length, is that all of those personal scandals that really reflect on the integrity of the individuals within the government, whether it's just the straight-out lies or whether it's the Angus Taylor and Watergate and what did ever happen to that $80 million from the selling off of water that didn't ever really seem to materialise, or Stuart Robert, you know, with the extraordinary internet bills and his parents not knowing that he'd nominated them as directors for a company or masquerading as a public official when he was going to China for private private business, Susan Lay flying up to the Gold Coast um, to keep up her pilot hours, buying an apartment while she was there, you know, Bridget McKenzie and all of those grant scandals around sports rorts, the community car parks, all of those sorts of, you know, reflections on people's personal integrities. They couldn't even make it into the book because they weren't dealing. I was trying to deal more with the kind of institutional policies that mm. had let us down. So, But it does make sense that a government which is comprised of so many people who are so lacking in personal integrity would flow through and become a government which is enacting policy for personal or partisan gain um, and political ends rather than and stepping back away from the sectional interests who fund them 
and looking at what is required um, for the greater good, for the common good of our nation, and indeed keeping an eye out on how the most vulnerable in our community are going and trying to find ways in which they can be helped, not ways in which they can be punished or ways in which their income can be cut or they can be made to jump through more hoops in order to receive the pathetic amounts um, of social security payments that we are providing to them, which do not uh, ensure that they can live a life out of poverty. So, you know, there was, as you say, there was such a breadth of issues that we've lived through with this government um, that one did have to choose which to leave out. And as I say, all of those personal failings of so many of the government ministers, um, you know, it's almost like we had to take them as red. We've been living yeah. with them for so long. And I just and, and focus more on, on the policy issues themselves. Well, I'm glad you did focus on policy. And one thing that still sticks out to me and that you definitely bring up in this book is the deserving unemployed and the fact mm. that in early 2020, in March, when suddenly the coronavirus pandemic really hit home in terms of its effect on the nation and on cafes and shops and people losing their jobs because we had to essentially lock down, that really overnight thousands of people became unemployed and also overnight poverty was practically solved in this country. And then we decided to only make that solution temporary. And it is still staggering to me, and I know to a lot of others, that we found the solution. We gave people back their dignity. We really restored the whole purpose of what a social security safety net type payment was for, which was to lift people back up and mean that they could provide for themselves and um, not be living below the poverty line. And then we just decided that that was, I guess, a temporary measure. What are your thoughts on that, given that it just seems like such a, an obvious thing to realise that there were, as you say in this book, things that we've learned that we decided to ignore? That seems to me one of the most extraordinary things of the pandemic, that overnight, as you say, we could raise the job seeker allowance by two. We could double it effectively. Um, and we did that because Josh Frydenberg seemed to be really uncomfortable with the fact that there were queues of people building up around the blocks near Centrelink who didn't fit the stereotypical idea of what an unemployed person looks like. Um, jobs did vanish overnight as cafes and other hospitality areas, theatres, some retail, all had to close down or move to online or takeaway only or that kind of thing. And so when there were these people who were suddenly thrust unexpectedly into unemployment, who did more closely resemble people like Josh and Josh's community, he thought, oh, well, this is terrible. They, they can't be forced to scrimp and save and be thrown into poverty in the way that we have kept so many people in poverty who've been unable to find jobs um, over the last course of, you know, however long. We can't have them living like that. So in order for them to live lives of dignity um, and to be able to continue with their day-to-day -day existence, we will double job seeker. And we doubled it overnight with the so-called coronavirus supplement. Um, and that had the collateral benefit of lifting people who'd been really stuck, mired in poverty for so long, living lives of such uncertainty and such insecurity and without any way of clawing their way out of poverty. I mean, we all know that if you're reliant on 
the measly amount that is job seeker now it's incredibly difficult to you know maintain your telecommunications that you need to to have a phone to be online so that potential employers um, can contact you it's very difficult to maintain transport um, whether that's public transport or trying to run a car if you're trying to get further afield the way that Single parents, for example, have to try and find childcare um, whilst they're looking for jobs or if they're engaging in some of the onerous and often quite ridiculous mutual obligations that the social security system requires of you. You know, all of these things which had just become part of the way of the difficult lives that individuals relying on the social security system were leading, none of that mattered. For most of the time, and it was only in that moment when people looked more like Josh that we showed that things could change and they could change radically and they could change immediately. And it does beg the question, why are we not doing that for our fellow Australians as a matter of course anyway? What was shown, and this has been shown by Accenture, which is hardly a hotbed of revolutionaries or left-wing radicals, they did some research into the real-time experiment that took place over the course of the pandemic when those living on Social Security were suddenly lifted out of poverty. And this idea that people are going to waste money or there's going to be a disincentive for people to keep looking for work was just revealed by the data to be completely untrue. So the cruelty being the point namely that we need to keep social security payments very low because otherwise people will be inspired just to lie around and watch Netflix and smoke dope and, you know, not try and find work and not get out there and try and become self-reliant. It's just not borne out by the facts that we were able to glean through this real-time experiment, a very unusual real-time experiment. So quite apart from the sort of the rights and dignities of our fellow citizens, we could actually show that this was good for the economy, um, both because people who were poor or who are on low incomes, they spent their money. So they were stimulating the economy by putting extra money straight into the economy. Um, so it's good for the economy and it's good for individuals and it's the right thing to do. So with that kind of trifecta, you just think, why are we being so cruel? Why are we allowing so many of our fellow citizens to lead such difficult lives? And not only that, but we do it with this kind of draconian surveillance through them through the system. Even yesterday there was talking about Services Australia having new line items in their budgets, which is about private investigators. Mm. And it's back to the days of trying to catch out our fellow citizens doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. Um, and it, it seems to me it's just an extraordinary way to run a country. And I come back to the point that it's an entirely unnecessary way to run a country. It is a counterproductive way to run a country. So it must come down to ideology. There's no rational basis for it. And again, rational-based policy, which has the eye on the greater good in a responsible way, that is the way forward and that's what we as independents have been advocating. I hope that that is one issue that independents would bring up with a future government if they were in a negotiating position because that's just one of the key policy areas where we've even seen agreement across the business community to say that the amount of job seeker is not enough. They've joined forces with groups like ACOS to say that things need to change. And obviously, uh, everyone might disagree on by how much, but there is room for change because I think most of the population who is logical and rational and isn't driven by 
ideology would also agree that it makes sense to support one another. This is the really interesting thing, is that there are a lot of policy areas where there is broad consensus um, amongst the Australian population Mm. um, every time when these issues are brought up, and yet they're being stymied by the political class. As you say, there is absolute broad agreement now that the job seeker rate needs to go up. Um, As you say, debates around the margin by exactly how much, but certainly by a significant amount. And that could be done immediately. Change of government, let's do it, done. Get rid of the Indu card, could do it immediately, let's do it, done. We put in train um, in the first 100 days, and this is something the Labor Party has signed up to, plans for a referendum on the voice to Parliament as embodied in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Let's do it immediately. Establish a National Integrity Commission can be done almost immediately. There are really key areas of policy on which there is broad consensus throughout the community, which we could move on within the first 100 days of a new parliament, which have been stymied by the ideological position of this particular government. Uh, And in some cases, but not all, so on Uluru statement on integrity, Labor are, are good, um, certainly better than... No, 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 I won't try and pass my words there. They have good policy positions on those two areas. And have a change of government, we could start enacting these things immediately with an independent crossbench holding the government to account and making sure that they reflect the broader wishes of the Australian population. These things can be done quickly. We have just been held back, as we were by same-sex marriage, on the, on the issue of same-sex marriage for so long. And then finally, and by a completely unnecessary and ridiculous process in the case of same-sex marriage, but finally it did get enacted. And, you know, no controversy. Everyone just moves on. And I think that's what would happen if some of these policies were enacted. You would see how ridiculous and recherche and old-fashioned and ideologically driven the policy positions are that being are being adopted at the moment by a spoiler of a government. Yeah, and you do point out in this book that really there is a huge amount of tribalism that's driving our current politics and also this whole political strategy of wedging as well. And we've seen that in the last sitting week, last week with, you know, the government desperately trying to wedge Labor on pretty much every legislative Mm. point and on China as another example. This is something which already existed in politics. There's no doubt that, you know, there's a certain level of ideology and tribalism, but it does seem that things have really increased to such a kind of fever pitch level that it's basically stopped the progression of any type of policy development from occurring. Yeah, look, I think this government has, as you say, taken things to a completely different level. And maybe part of it is the fact that it's got this bad uh, over the term of this government is because of the unexpected nature of the government's win, is that they just simply didn't have a policy agenda at all. They had nothing that they were really proposing to do to better Australia. If it hadn't been for the pandemic, I actually don't know what the parliament would have spent all of their time doing over the past three years, because there certainly weren't ideas and agendas being advanced by this government. You know, the the last election campaign was, as much of the last couple of years had been, was just this procession of ridiculous photo opportunities of Scott Morrison doing 
ever more crazy things in front of a camera to try and convince people that he's actually not a mean-spirited, ideologically driven, power-hungry politician, but he's actually a man of the people who likes his rugby and, you know, who cooks curry. But, you know, it... It, over the last couple of weeks, you know, the, the government really has been saying the quiet bits out loud. They actually mm. have been saying that so much of what they, their antics in Parliament over the last two sitting weeks in particular were about setting tests for Labor. And what those tests were was some kind of weird and arbitrary political test as to whether or not they would stand up to the government on issues which the government had decided were going to be controversial or whether they would capitulate. And time and time again, the opposition does seem to capitulate to the government in order to make the debate go away. Um, Laura Tingle described Labor's three-word slogan as being, we're with them. This idea that they, whilst they may have some policy positions that, that they're prepared to advance, a lot of it is about being reassuring that whilst we're not them, we are quite close to them or we're not sufficiently different to them that you need to be worried about mm. voting for us. So what the government then has done is just find more and more extreme positions to adopt to try and ferment worry and ferment anxiety and, you know, the ridiculous and infantile characterisation of Labor as the kind of reds under the bed scares that we've seen over the last two weeks with Dutton and then Morrison seemingly Morrison wanting to play catch-up with Dutton on insane right-wing positions in case Dutton makes a move on Morrison's position. But, you know, they have shown that they have... There is no boundary to what they will do, um, to what they will try and weaponise. Using national security as a political domestic tool really is quite beyond the pale. And to abandon bipartisanship on national security at this point in time, when everybody does agree that it's a volatile world in which we're living, the growth of China, Europe in its most dangerous flashpoint since World War II, all of these sorts of things are as nothing compared to the government's desire to win the next election. And they really don't seem to care who are raising voices of concern, in this case, the extraordinary and, you know, entirely unusual intervention by the national security agencies themselves saying, you know what, guys, probably not a good idea to just steamroll over them too in their pursuit of Labor and the Manchurian candidate rhetoric is, I think, unprecedented in our political time. But sadly, part of the course of this government and just continuing on a trajectory of anything will be used for partisan political advantage and nothing is considered through the prism of actually what would be good for the country and what would actually progress our country in any number of, of different ways. So it's, it's, a, it's a very strange and disappointing but quite dangerous time that we're in. Yeah. Well, just finally, you know, to close out that thought, this is something which people have noticed has caused a lot of undermining of faith in politicians and in politics and parliament and even the idea of democracy. It certainly made a lot of voters feel disillusioned and cynical about politics. And I know that the whole point of the independent per se is really to restore that trust and integrity to say that I'm not beholden to these interests and I'm not accepting, you know, donations from XYZ company or fossil fuel group. And that's one thing which certainly also seems to be a kind of easy thing to do 
in the sense of committing your own values to your political donations as an individual, it um, clearly doesn't happen as much at a party level. It Donations come from all types of sources and and as we have heard, we only find out about it 18 months later and many of these trusts or, or business groups are kind of unnamed or not traced back to individual business people or, or wealthy individuals. So I wondered when you're thinking about being an independent, clearly there's a lot more focus on your integrity as an independent and, you know, where you get your donations from as one example of many measures of of integrity. So I wonder, you know, how are you approaching that yourself and how do you see that? Because obviously that's, it's not only a political advantage compared to the other parties or the other candidates, but it's also a kind of point of difference and something that, you know, there's pressure on all of you to kind of do the right thing. Look, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think our political donation system is so in need of reform. I mean, it's nearly half the money that flows to the major parties is completely unidentified, as you say. Partly it's because threshold for donations is now high, nearly $15,000. You know, that's a substantial amount of money that you can donate before you have to disclose it at all. Um, But even beyond that, actually so much of the money that flows in is deliberately hidden. It goes in through these associated entities, so which are essentially fundraising bodies, which have been set up exclusively to raise money for the major parties. And yet because the money goes to the associated entity rather than directly to the major party, the major party only discloses that they've got money from the associated entity. Same thing as if you're attending major fundraising events is that if you're getting a service back, you don't necessarily need to disclose the amount that you've you've paid to go and sit and eat, you know, bad chicken next to the minister. Um, so there are there are strategies which have been carefully developed to try and hide the money flowing into the major parties. But even that which is disclosed is disclosed 18 months later, way after elections have been fought, policies have been developed and policies have been implemented. And when we do see who's giving the monies, surprise, surprise, it is those who can benefit directly from decisions made by government. And the biggest donors are fossil fuel industries. It is those who stand to benefit from contracts and from access that are in the purview of the government to dispense. So whilst there might not be you know, a direct nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I'll donate to you if you give me that contract down the track. There is this environment of this sort of elite club which is created where everybody is mixing in it together. And in the case of the fossil fuel industry, for example, we see people moving directly from companies, uh, fossil fuel companies into parliament or from peak bodies into the offices of government, into senior advisory roles within government. Politicians leave parliament and they're put on the board of these organisations. I mean, there is this sort of club, Marion Wilkinson called it the Carbon Club, um, of groups of individuals and organisations who have an ideological and a commercial interest in maintaining the status quo, and they go about doing it very strategically and with a lot of thought and a lot of planning and a lot of money. And so from what we would say as independents is that we need to 
know what's going on. We need to have transparent and accountable government. So we need to know how it's being funded. Um, and in order to do that, we need to see real-time disclosure of any donations which are above $1,000. And I'm quite happy to, to live by that throughout the campaign. In fact, I've only had two donations <laughs> that are above $1,000, and both of those donors are named on my GoFundMe page. But this sort of hidden world of money means that we don't have transparency. So we don't actually know who's funding our major parties. And then we, so therefore we don't know um, when policies are being developed or implemented, who has had influence over them and what that means. And look, when we get a gas pipeline being proposed as an appropriate solution to a global pandemic by someone who just happens to have lots of commercial interests in fossil fuels and gas, as happened with Nev Power, you do have to think, well, look, how is a gas pipeline relevant to a global pandemic? And if we're mm. focusing our energies on things like that, perhaps we're not focusing our energies on whether or not, you know, we should diversify the sources of our vaccines, for example. So there are real costs to this. Um, and again, there are easy fixes to this. Um, and that could and indeed will be done if there is an independent crossbench in the next parliament. Yes. Well, we will find out fairly soon, actually. And it is really exciting. <laughs> Look, it is exciting. It yeah. is daunting. At various points, it's quite terrifying. But I guess the one good thing about it all, as you say, is that it is coming up soon. And this campaign and all of the energy and all of the terror that <laughs> it can inspire and galvanise, you know, it's a finite run. So there will be an election by May 21 and all of this will be over one way or another. And look, I hope I'm on my way to, to Canberra. I'm not packing my bag just yet, I'd have to say, but I do feel confident, as I said at the start of our conversation, that there could be sufficient numbers of these independents who are all about reviving democracy at a really grassroots level, having a dialogue with our community that we can take to Canberra and transform the kind of representation that each community and each electorate has and through that really help transform the country. I'm confident we can do it. Well, I am now too, and I'm feeling very optimistic, <laughs> which is a rare thing for me on politics. So thank well, you, Joe. that's a good way to start the day. <laughs> yeah, you really have. You've started the, the show very well, and I, I do appreciate that. It's uh, really injected some positivity into this show this morning. So thank I am you. I'm pleased to be of service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I much appreciate it. And I really do wish you all the best with your campaign. Wonderful. Thank you yeah. so much for that. I really appreciate it. No, good luck. I can't wait to see what happens on election night. Thank you. See you, Joe. See ya. Bye. I've just been speaking with Joe Dyer. She is an independent candidate running for the seat of Boothby in South Australia at the federal level, and she's also a cultural curator and outgoing artistic director of the Adelaide Writers Festival, which is coming up in March if you are interested. And we've just been discussing her In the National Interest essay or short book, which is out through Monash University Publishing and it's called Burning Down the House, Reconstructing Modern Politics. And as Joe said, there are so many independents running in various seats. So you may find yourself having some luck and finding that there might be an independent running in your electorate that resonates with you. And uh, as Joe said, the preferential voting system means that if you voted one for an independent and 
they didn't get up on the first round, well, that doesn't matter because your second preference is where your actual vote will be directed to. Uh, and if they don't get up, it then goes down. And as you can tell, it's a an excellent uh, system of voting that we have here in Australia. So hopefully that does make you feel a little bit more optimistic like I do. And uh, that if you're not happy with the major parties or the minor parties that you could look to an independent as one of the many choices that you have at this upcoming election, which, as Joe said, has to be called very soon and will be held by May 21. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the program Dr. David Brophy, who is a senior lecturer in modern Chinese history in the Department of History at the University of Sydney. And uh, we're going to be talking to David today about his recent book, China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering which was released last year through Black Ink and has very much a lot of contemporary relevance to the conversations that we've been having in Australian politics and foreign policy in recent weeks, but also in recent months. And these conversations, as we can tell, will be ongoing given the election campaign, which is unofficially underway here in Australia. Now, David is also very much interested in the history of Xinjiang and the Uyghur people, and he also is involved in a recently established group, the Sydney Anti-Orcus Coalition, and there is also a Melbourne or Victoria-based branch, uh, if you're interested, called No Orcus Victoria, and uh, I welcome David now. Hi there, David. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show and it was really great to speak with you last time about similar issues, but we're going to thankfully get into some of the nuance of this topic and anyone who has been following Australian politics in the last couple of weeks at minimum will have noticed that um, it's very hard to get nuance into a discussion and debate like this in terms of Australia's relationship with China Chinese Australians and how they're treated and received in Australia and these conversations that we have about foreign influence and national sovereignty and these now challenges we're seeing to this so-called bipartisanship approach that we've seen between the coalition government and also the Australian Labor Party. So I'm really glad that we um, can finally get a chance to delve into these issues a little bit more. Now, first of all, I wanted to speak with you about the title of this book because it is pretty representative of the situation that we're, we're finding ourselves in, China Panic. And you do address that in pretty much the first page of your book is to say why you've, you've titled it China Panic. Could you expound on that for us and really set the terms of the discussion here? Well, specifically what I'm talking about in terms of China Panic is a a discourse surrounding China that that picked up really quite notably in 2017. And it was uh, a lot of it had to do with the introduction of this new concept of foreign interference as a as a growing threat to the, uh, the political system in Australia, a lot of innuendo about the activities of uh, Chinese Australians or Chinese uh, interests uh, in Australia. You know, it took on different dimensions when we started to see 
you know, really loud headlines about China's uh, increasing involvement in the in the Pacific region and so on. Um, the occasional intervention from the security agencies into public debate uh, along the lines that China had intention to take over the Australian political system in, in some way. And then you had quite, you had sort of the popularizers get on board with this books about uh, Chinese invasion uh, of uh, Australia and so on. And that was that was to me a really remarkable uh, development and one that I, I began following quite closely and um, eventually ended up writing this this book about. Now, of course, all the themes, um, all the tropes that are in play here have a have a deeper history. Uh, Australia has engaged in bouts of panic or paranoia towards international politics and the you know the perceived vulnerabilities of a of a white settler colony located uh, in Asia going back you know, really from the, the moment of its, of its founding. What I see taking place around about 2017 is a, is a breakdown of a, a certain equilibrium that existed in elite foreign policy debate up until that point. And you still see these positions expressed in the, within the foreign policy establishment, uh, even to this day. I mean, on the one hand, there's been a lot of enthusiasm towards China from the, the governments up until quite recently that Australia's uh, economic prosperity was entirely tied up with China, that, that China was our, you know, best friend, keeping uh, Australia afloat. Uh, you know, at the same time, being balanced by the security perspective that China was a growing threat, that uh, China would uh, potentially one day compromise America and Australia's ability to to collaborate to to shape the region in the way that we would like to. And what has happened, I think, is that that debate has quite decisively tipped uh, in the direction of the um, the security perspective. Driven, I think, not so much by rational, you know, calculation that China really is threatening uh, Australia, but that China has got to the point where it is starting to challenge America's dominance in in Asia. And if you look historically, Australian foreign policy has always been built around the on the foundation of a, of a collaboration with a more powerful great power in the region, be it Britain and then the United States, that by associating with that great power by by trying to gain influence you know around its decision making table that Australia could have some influence in the region as well so for people who are wedded to that sort of perspective to you know to contemplate an Asia without America or with at least with a with a reduced American role they see that as ultimately reducing Australia's significance relevance to the United States could possibly lead to a, an attenuation of the Australia America relationship and for a lot of people, that's that's kind of brought on a, a, a crisis. And I, I think that that's really, you know, when you follow the day-to-day -day bickering in Parliament, it can often seem that this is all just driven by electoral politics and so on. And clearly, there's a lot of cynicism, there's a lot of opportunism in what the government is doing at the moment with an eye to the upcoming election. But I, I do see this as part of a pattern that is being um, driven by these these deeper considerations. It's certainly not a new thing, these arguments and debates, and obviously the election has intensified the recent rhetoric that we've seen in Parliament within the last week or so, and um, maybe we'll just address that at, right at the outset so we can get past it in a way. 
by mentioning what's been happening and there was a series of events I guess in the sense that the head of ASIO had delivered an address and and spoken about foreign interference now being a, a major issue for them and obviously terrorism is still an issue but foreign interference has really kind of taken the lead. This is something that you address in the book in terms of China which we'll get to but then we've also seen kind of a snowballing, I guess, uh, effect in terms of Peter Dutton picking up certain things in Parliament and then Scott Morrison himself also taking up the mantle. And we've seen uh, words bandied around or phrases like Manchurian candidate, uh, which was withdrawn subsequently in Parliament. We've seen the coalition government accuse Labor of being China's pick in the election, which was something that Peter Dutton had suggested with no evidence for that position. And then we've seen uh, subsequently the head of ASIO actually go on to the ABC 730 program to um, douse down the flames of what's been happening and basically say that uh, all parties across all spectrums of politics are equal opportunity targets for foreign interference and that there is not one particular party that this activity is focused on. And he's obviously said a lot more. And then we've seen uh, Dennis Richardson, who was the secretary of DFAT, as well as ASIO boss and Australia's ambassador to Washington, actually saying that it's really essentially quite reckless to come out and suggest that there's a big difference or any daylight between the uh, Labor Party and the coalition government when it comes to national security. So that's a, a very, very broad and brief paraphrased version of what's been happening. What's your take on that situation? And And obviously, because it does come up in the book, the fact that we have seen a rising involvement by security agencies in foreign affairs discussions. And I know that it's certainly come up in conversations I've seen around with people like Paul Keating, really saying that in the past, it was often a matter for DFAT, these relationships between, you know, Australia and China and setting foreign policy. And now we've seen more and more that um, security agencies are entering into a more public discussion. So I wondered, you know, what your assessment are of that, but also just the political rhetoric, the heightened rhetoric that we've seen in the last week. Yeah, well, it is the case that ASIO is playing a more public role. And I think that, I think that what got missed it was the way in which, you know, people took the story up and, and ran with it and then it took on momentum in, in Parliament. But if we go back to what ASIO was originally saying here, they lobbed this story into the, the public domain, a story that had no hard evidence uh, attached to it, uh, but it cre- created this immense stir around the threat of, of foreign interference. And I saw very little questioning of what exactly was going on here. They actually backtracked at certain points to say that, well, none of the candidates who were targeted here knew that they were being targeted and this wasn't actually related to any upcoming election. So it was all extremely vague and yet it it shifted the political discussion to a really significant degree. Now, now ASIO has since, since it became a sort of a partisan football, ASIO has since tried to step back and, and wash its hands of responsibility here by saying, you know, no, this is not about any particular party. And and again, they've sort of been praised for that without, I think, you know, real questioning of, of what is what is going on here. I think that, I mean, I think that the interventions from ASIO to try to hose things down a little bit are quite revealing in the sense that I think it indicates that there's a sense in the in Canberra, in the establishment, that 
this kind of stuff might not work for the government. Labor may well be the next government. And so, you know, the security agencies don't want to get off on the wrong foot with a potential Labor government. I would see this more in terms of ASIO staking out some plausible deniability in terms of its role here, because of course it is a very political thing to just throw these stories out into the media. Whatever the precise effects in terms of the elections, it's going to, you know, it's going to stoke, you know, increased anxiety and it's, you know, and I'd really like to see more people in the media actually poking at these stories a little bit, say, is, you know, is there anything here? Because we've had similar stories in the past where, you know, stories have come out about Chinese agents potentially grooming candidates for office. There was one a couple of years ago involving a guy called Nick Jal down in Melbourne who was, um, you know, written up in the press as, as potentially this, you know, this ideal candidate for China to plant someone in parliament. You know, then as more details came out, it, it turned out that he was, you know, he'd actually been in custody for fraud when the Liberal Party was doing its pre-selections in 2018. He was deep in debt. He ended up, according to police, committing suicide because of this debt. It didn't seem like a very realistic plot line that, that China would be interested in using someone like this to, to put people in, in parliament. And, you know, again, I, I wish we wouldn't move on from these stories so quickly we could actually ask people for some evidence. The idea that the security agencies should just, you know, ask us to trust them. I mean, that is, that's the expectation, you know, that applies in authoritarian countries. I, I don't think it necessarily uh, should be the case here in Australia. Now, having said all that, obviously the Liberals have picked this up and tried to run with it. All these um, various attacks on, on Labor, this is definitely an escalation in relation to what we saw in the last election campaign. There were, I suppose, trial rhetorical balloons that went up a, a couple of times before the last election, trying to finger Labor as uh, as China's choice for the, the election. Government now really seems to be running hard on that line, and it does have a certain uh, last-ditch feel to it. There's been some discussion as to, is it going to work for them? People are trying to speculate, and, and obviously it's received quite a critical response from certain quarters. At the same time, you know, when you look at the, the opinion polls as to Australian attitudes towards China, you know, negative attitudes towards China are slowly ticking up. And given that Labor is committed to this position of bipartisanship on foreign policy, Labor are never going to really confront the, the premises of this kind of attack from the Liberals. All they'll try and do is sort of turn it around, say, no, we're not the Manchurian candidates, you're the Manchurian candidates, you know. Um, mm. and, and that doesn't really do anything to diminish the sense that China is this looming threat that's that's trying to, to white out our, our political system. And I really wish the Labour Party would do more to take on those sort of basic notions. So what we end up having is, you know, sort of a debate about rhetoric, you know, is the government, you know, too heated in its rhetoric or something. But we you know, we, we don't have a debate about policy and the government's orientation towards the, the US-China rivalry, which is, you know, what we really need to be talking about. And, and, and Labor doesn't want to have that debate either, unfortunately. No. Well, I mean, it was pretty obvious when former Prime Minister Paul Keating was trying to do that at the National Press Club recently. And Labor, knowing that an election was around the corner, um, really did have absolutely zero interest engaging with what Paul Keating had put down in that conversation. And it was a really interesting conversation, as they always are when you listen to Paul Keating talk, whether you agree with him or not. I mean, he had some really great one-liners, as always. 
talking about the AUKUS agreement, which had recently come to fruition and had really spurred him on to say something in November in relation to the AUKUS agreement and its um, effect on combating China. He said it's like throwing toothpicks at the mountain, which is probably true. These are things which are, I think, far more useful contributions because they're kind of breaking through a lot of the spin and um, really bringing to light some of the obvious hypocrisies as well. But not that we all have to get into a debate about what we agree with or don't agree with with Paul Keating, but given that he is someone who at least was trying to engage with policy when there aren't as many people doing that, you know, what are your thoughts on, on those people who say that and run the line that we still do need to realise that Australia is in the Indo-Pacific or as it used to be called, the Asia-Pacific region, that we are one of many countries in this region, that we have always clearly been here and that we need to recognise that and first of all have, I guess, a respect for that, but also have deeper ties that aren't necessarily just focused on this really imperialist colonial mindset that we've always really seemed to have since the British Empire came over here and and took what wasn't theirs. I wonder what your thoughts are on those arguments about Australia having those deeper ties. Right. Well, I mean, just just on Paul Keating for a second. I mean, Mm. as I was saying earlier, I mean, the China debate has been this elite debate for quite a long time. And foreign policy is sort of it's sort of the nature of foreign policy. It's, it's It's a field of discussion where there isn't usually very much democratic input. Public is generally presented with fait accomplis on various um, issues, you know, AUKUS being an example. Mm, and getting a, a white paper delivered to us. Yeah, that's right. And and obviously, you know, there's a whole cohort of people, um, including Paul Keating, who, who have a, you know, a legacy of time in office or so on. It was very much associated with redirecting the Australian economy towards Northeast Asia and and China in particular, and they you know they see on balance that to be have been a positive thing. And you know people like Paul Keating, I I think that a lot of what he says is on the money. I think that you know sometimes critics of people like Paul Keating have a point as well that as a consequence of that elite engagement with China, they have now developed all sorts of, of interests in sustaining a profitable Australia-China relationship and so on. And I, I try in my book and everything that I do to to sort of offer a third perspective on this discussion. So I'm not coming to this from the point of view that, you know, well, we just need to maintain the trade balance with China because that's, you know, that's making us rich and it'd be really stupid not to not to continue that. I mean, my basic position is ultimately the kind of relationship that Australia or China have could be of all different shades. The point is that the course we're on now is heightening tensions uh, in the region. It's having damaging consequences for Australian society, both in terms of civil liberties, both in, you know, the rise of racism uh, and so on. And, And that's all for me reason enough to be opposed to the policy direction that we're on. Now, Ultimately, yeah, I mean, any shift in policy is is going to stir up all sorts of questions about Australian identity, the the question of Australia's place in Asia, uh, and so on. Those, you know, those sorts of things are all all sort of implicated in this discussion. Where I also would take issue at times with the, the sort of rhetoric that people like Paul Keating put forward is this sense that you get that if, if Australia just sort of, you know, loosened its ties with the US, that, that you know, things would be a lot better. It's a, it's a perspective that I think a lot of people who are sceptical of the direction of policy at the moment uh, tend to have, that, that we're just being pushed into this 
by the US. We've signed up to this crazy uh, American strategy. And I, th I think that that sort of lets Canberra off the hook a little bit. I mean, I think that Australia's orientation towards the US, you know, is driven by Australia's own less ambitious perspective, but, but, but nonetheless, you know, a, a perspective to dominate its immediate region, to be able to call the shots in the Pacific play some sort of role in, in shaping the politics of, of Southeast Asia uh, and so on. And I, I think if we don't have a critique of, you know, Australia's own imperial instincts towards the region, then we're going to be in for trouble because ultimately whatever happens in the China-US relationship, I mean, th there is going to be a growing Chinese presence in the Pacific and so on. I mean, it's just, just inevitable, the, the size of China's economy the options that China seems to present to elites in, in that region, it's going to, you know, it's going to draw China in there. If, if our policy is guided by the idea that this is our backyard, that we need to exercise some sort of Monroe doctrine to, to keep any competitors out of this, this region, then that's going to be fuel for China panic, you know, for, for decades to come, um, I worry. Indeed. We did even see around AUKUS and that announcement of the deepening ties, military and other ties between the UK, the US and Australia, that in fact, the reason why apparently we needed a different type of submarine that the French would not be able to supply us with was because it's now not about just defending Australia's territorial waters. It's also now about offence and this idea that we need to take an aggressive stance in terms of our foreign policy and defence. And that really was pretty much a, a clear head tip towards China and to say that you know, now that Australia needs to step up beside the US in the Indo-Pacific region, now that they have embarked upon this strategy of encirclement, as you say, that it's not just about containing China now, it's about, you know, surrounding them. And the US already does that with the number of military bases it has around China. And I know that that is something which is obviously a major issue for China, to say the very least. So, I mean, if we talk about and look at the fact that Australia is kind of changing its position, the US has ramped up its position under Trump and now Biden in terms of its rhetoric and this idea that, you know, the world isn't big enough for the two of us and that, you know, it's a choice between democracy and autocracy and as you even point out in this book, there's rhetoric around saying that the existence of China is threatening our way of life. The fact that it even this country exists is, is a threat. I mean, when you read it on a piece of paper, it really does sound quite fanciful that the debate has gotten that far. Because as many people point out, including yourself, we're not applying the same standards to China as we do to the United States. And the whole idea that China should be playing by some special rule book that the United States has helped to create, you know, is quite unfair because even the US doesn't play by its own rule book. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the double standards that are at play here in terms of our expectations of China and should it be checking its power and putting its head down in the region while it grows, which seems highly unlikely and unreasonable. And also America's idea that there's only room for one of us and we've got to this point where it's about our way of life, our values, and it's about democracy and autocracy. Yeah, well, I, I think that the, you know, when people talk about China breaking the rules, I really don't think that the, the thing that we need to be worried about is China breaking the rules so much as China playing by the rules, you know, because when you look at the international system, one of the rules is clearly that great powers have the ability to 
pick and choose when they follow international law. They have the ability to exercise unilateral use of, of military force when they feel it's necessary. There's, you know, great power behavior is, is it's not a nice thing. Um, and it's not something that we should ever encourage or welcome uh, from anyone, including China. The problem is, of course, Australia's response to China is all about buttressing and bolstering uh, America's ability to continue to exercise that great power privilege. So it's very troubling to, to think that the, the logic of this situation is gradually pushing China towards more American-style actions internationally. You know, we, we see that with China sort of defending its friends from criticism at the United Nations and, you know, trying to assert more of a sphere of influence in its uh, immediate neighborhood. Of course, it's very difficult, China being in the position it, it is, to ever conceive of the sort of regional hegemonic ambitions that, that America has asserted in, you know, place like Latin America or, or so on. But nonetheless, I mean, China clearly wants to push America back in East Asia. A lot of the a lot of the rhetoric that gets talked up in our media as China being belligerent or aggressive. When you look at what China is, usually what they're saying in those sort of speeches and so on is, is back off. Mm. Anyone who picks a fight with China is going to come a cropper, uh, essentially, is the, the sort of stuff that Xi Jinping has been, you know, inserting into his speeches. So that's not something we should be um, we should be happy about. It's it's just that, you know, as I said, our, our response is doing nothing to really challenge the dynamics here. We just have some fantasy that we can muscle up and win this contest. Whereas what we really should be doing is, you know, trying to come good on some of this very noble sounding rhetoric about, you know, international law and sovereignty and so on that, that we like to um, to talk about and, and discussing how we could actually create a world in which big countries don't bully the small and so on. That's, I think, the only credible framework in which you can actually come at a, a critique of what China is doing or what China will potentially do in the future. But it's, you know, it's just very far from where the Australian discussion is at the moment. There's a whole chapter, you know, early in your book devoted to China and, and Chinese history and where China came from. And this is something, you know, I've spoken about a little bit in the past is their very, very long history and their perception of themselves in the world and how that's changed over time and also their perception of the quote-unquote West and, you know, Western values, liberalism and democracy. And I think that's often also missing in this discussion is that we've become very obsessed from our own perspective Obviously, historians like yourself and, um, you know, people in those types of professions are trained to put themselves in other people's shoes and to, to look at things critically and to understand people from a different time of a different culture. So I wonder, could you also, you know, share with us China's perspective in this situation, particularly drawing on their history, because their history is very much referenced all the time in terms of how they see themselves. So I just wondered if you could just, yeah, share with us the China perspective from the Chinese government, but also just from, I guess, Chinese people, because those two groups are not exactly the same. And that's also another issue that should come up more and should be differentiated. Yeah, not at all. And it's, I mean, it's an extremely diverse place in the political discussion, despite the, the quite chilly climate publicly in China. You know, there's all different points of view uh, regarding all these questions uh, exist in China. 
very long history that is, you know, that's the foundation for all sorts of notions about the longevity of China or the sort of the essential nature of China as a state or civilization and so on. I, I'm not as invested in those sorts of narratives, although they, you know, a lot of people still find them the meaningful. I, I think the key thing is to have a sense of the, the trajectory of things from the, you know, the beginning of the point of contact and uh, engagement and then conflict in the 19th century, which, you know, we have to remember was often motivated by the sort of liberal principles that people still uh, espoused today. You know, the Opium War was fought to uphold the principle of free trade, you know, Western domination of the Qing dynasty's institutions, you know, dictating uh, extraterritoriality for its citizens and so on was part of this sort of imagined process of civilizing China that that you know people naturally reacted against and I and I think you know Chinese who were concerned to extricate their country from this situation um, at the end of the nineteenth century massively mired in debt political fragmentation um, on its knees politically economically you know they developed a pretty sober realistic. Uh, appraisal of the nature of the world system and the nature of, of liberalism and, you know, did not necessarily see, I mean, China had experiments with parliamentary system uh, early on in the 20th century, but it wasn't enough to contain the centrifugal forces that were at work uh, at that time. And, you know, which often involved different Western parties backing different warlords and so on. So, you know, Chinese politics became quite militarized and both major parties that emerged, the Kuomintang and the communists, essentially had the same notion of a, you know, the need for a disciplined party to wage a struggle against uh, imperialism, some sort of revolution would be necessary to, to save China. So that's you know, that's that's why Chinese politics has taken the, the shape that it, it did. I don't think there's anything sort of inherent in Chinese history that would dictate that modern China is going to be this relatively illiberal single party state. I, I, I see that more as a as a reaction to the situation that China found itself in. Now, once that's established, of course, you know, you have a, a lead to party bureaucracy that, that you know, sees their survival as, as equivalent to the survival of China and the party develops its own interest in holding on to power and, and all these things. And, and we, we see all that playing out. But, but I think this general skepticism towards the, the benign intentions of the West is something that's pretty widespread still and at a base level kind of sustains uh, the legitimacy of the Communist Party. I mean, certainly when people do, you know, comparison of political systems today, you know, it is now quite informed by direct comparisons that people are drawing as people travel around and, and so on. And people looking at the experience of recently handling things like COVID and so on. And all of that, that, that China, people acknowledge, has been through some disastrous periods, even since its revolution. There's a general sense that things are, well, things are relatively on track now. And that, you know, the parties claim that, that we need stability to keep the momentum going now, that uh, we can't afford too much democracy, too much dissension within the party, that kind of thing, that, that there could be a bumpy ride ahead as we take over from the US as the, the world's leading economy, uh, so on. All of these things, I think, are pretty widely recognized attitudes. You know, I would say there's still a political debate going on in Beijing. I mean, just as we have hawks and doves in our foreign policy elites, you know, China China does as well. Um, there will be people in Beijing now who will be, you know, still on the lookout for some sort of opening from the US to maybe try to tone things down a little bit. 
reach some sort of resolution to some of these immediate points of conflict. There are also, though, of course, people saying that things have crossed a line. The US has done enough now for us to be persuaded that it's never going to you know, tolerate the continued growth of China in terms of its economic influence, translating into political influence. And we just need to steel ourselves for the conflict to, to come. So China has got to this point historically as a country with a sense of vulnerability, as a country that has seen itself as having to tack between relationships with more powerful countries, US, Soviet Union. And so, you know, I think there'll still be an instinct to, to continue that sort of uh, strategy. Of course, you, you do have the more hardline, assertive approach saying, you know, now this is our time to shine. Not be too concerned about uh, accommodating the US or, or reaching accommodations with the US. Well, it certainly seems that at the moment, the rhetoric, at least from the US, isn't declining. And you mentioned in the book, um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who was saying various things at his Senate confirmation hearing, including that um, he said, quote, President Trump was right in taking a tougher approach to China, but apparently, you know, went about it the wrong way. And he says that, quote, China is a strategic adversary. These are clear signs that Biden isn't stepping down. Biden himself has really ramped it up even after the election where you would assume that now he has his position secure, that he doesn't necessarily have to take the same stance in responding to Trump and political wedging on China, but we haven't seen that happen. So I guess from that perspective, it seems like it puts everyone in a position where there isn't really a spot to back down from and that we're also here in Australia seeing commentators say that war with China is inevitable and that the, the drums of war are beating and, you know, these things are, are only ramping up and it seems that it's a bit of a cycle that we've kind of got ourselves into now. And obviously it's very difficult for any side to find some common ground. Obviously a lot goes on behind the scenes that we don't hear about, but we do hear about the fact that nothing much is happening behind the scenes between Australia and China, which is disturbing for many people who commentate in this area. You say in the book, and I don't believe this has changed, that leaders of the two countries, Australia and China, have not held prearranged talks since 2016. Uh, ministers haven't done the same since 2018. And obviously, we saw in the last few years, these um, various kinds of informal export bans and trading disputes around certain exports like wine. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on Australia and how we are ramping things up here, not just our politics, but also this discussion about war, this idea that this end game somewhere down the track is war and that that's um, somehow inevitable. I mean, what does that do to the current state of Australian politics and also just society and this idea of China panic? I mean, clearly it must not help things. Uh, no, well, look, there's no relationship with China to speak of um, right now, and there, there hasn't been for some time. And I, I think that we've got ourselves into this position now where this claim that all of China's actions towards Australia are undermining sovereignty and that um, it's got to the point now where people essentially argue that any change in policy, any consideration of grievances that China has put forward that in and of itself would be a, a concession of Australian sovereignty and therefore is not possible. So 
you know, I just can't see any politician at this particular point in time putting up their hand and even saying that we, we need to talk to China. The likelihood that someone is going to jump on that and accuse them of, of kowtowing to Beijing um, is pretty high these days. So, so I do think that we're sort of stuck in this in this situation. I, I think that the Australian foreign policy elite are going to drive this strategy to uphold America's position in Asia for as long as it looks viable. And so obviously that'll depend on how long that seems to be viable. And that will depend to some extent on US-China relations. Or they'll push it until there's enough opposition from broader Australian society to stop it, which you know, is something I would like to see. And we're sort of starting to see certain amount of campaigning emerging. The, the AUKUS deal has triggered, I think, a slightly broader response from civil society in Australia to the military buildup in the way that it's brought in people who are concerned about nuclear submarines, people who are concerned about uh, environmental issues and, uh, and so on. But I mean, you know, we're in a very dangerous situation. I mean, I think that we do have to keep in mind, of course, that Australia's actions in and of themselves can never be determinative in this in this sort of situation. Australia's not going to go to war with China by itself, right? So there is always this element of lobbying to what Australia is doing that, you know, Australia wants to see America muscle up to China. Australia wants to embed America in the region militarily. Ultimately, though, that does all, you know, contribute to increasing the risk that we will get uh, involved uh, in some sort of war. This is it's the, I think it's more the fine print in AUKUS that we need to be thinking about because, you know, nuclear submarines, if they're ever built, and there's a question around that, they might not be ready for 20 years. And no one really th- thinking about China in the defense ministries of, of the world is, is working with a 20-year time frame. But I think what we do risk seeing is just the, the continual beefing up of the American military presence in the north of Australia, visits from American warships, you know, installation of missiles, in the north of Australia, and and so on, you know, Morrison is boasting about the fact that he's uh, he's increased defence spending, and all of that is is very troubling. It's having a quite a devastating effect, I think, in sections of the Chinese Australian community. People who are watching this are, you know, becoming aware of the fact that it's much harder for people of Chinese background now to to put their hands up and have opinions about Australian foreign policy, Australian relations with China, and so on. And I mean, it's also been compounded, of course, by the COVID pandemic. These things sort of mixed in a very toxic way, the idea that Chinese people were some sort of fifth column for the Chinese Communist Party got mixed up with this idea that Chinese people were spreading this virus. And you would sort of see these tropes blending. and, you know, nowadays people just have to expect that if, they, if they're running and they've, you know, got a Chinese name or Chinese background, they're going to cop a lot of racist crap about being a Chinese spy and, and so on. And this is why I think, you know, we do need to be more critical when ASIO just drop these stories into the, into the media about influence operations. Because on the one hand, they can say, well, okay, no, we've, we've disrupted it. There's nothing happening. It's, you know, it's problem solved. But you know, when they don't give any details, they just say that there's someone doing this and um, targeting different candidates, you know, they don't say who. All that really does is create a cloud of suspicion that uh, over everyone, <laughs> because, you know, we don't know who's, you know, who's involved. Yeah. It could be anyone. And that's, you know, that that's why I really do think it's it's important that we don't just allow it to be established that 
you know, there's this foreign interference thing that's that's up there with terrorism as this, you know, incredible threat to Australian sovereignty because, you know, that sort of thing can drive, you know, deep wedge through, you know, Australian society. And we're, we're already starting to see that, starting to see that happening. I think it's potentially going to be a rough few months coming up to the election if things continue as they have. It certainly has real-world effects. I mean, even when we saw Donald Trump talking about China and linking it with COVID-19 and using very inflammatory language, it's caused anti-Chinese racism and anti-Asian violence in America, and we've seen that widely reported, and it's only been escalating in nature, and, and the figures support that. Even here in Australia, we saw reports around people of Chinese heritage saying that they had been targeted physical harassment or racism on the street, um, and it certainly has ramped up as well in the last few years because of the, the COVID pandemic. But obviously, these political debates, they stoke the flames, they make things worse. There's an absolutely no question about it, and it does mean that there's more likelihood that there's division, and as you say, this unfair cloud of suspicion And that's a really concerning problem for obvious reasons. I wanted to, um, in this final part of the conversation, to just talk about that in a little bit more depth in the sense that I myself am very interested in history and, and especially the Chinese experience in Australia and, you know, done my own research in there. And and I was really interested to know, and I think many people would, that it's been two centuries since the first Chinese migrant settled here in Australia. It's been over 174 years since the first Chinese migrants arrived on Victoria's goldfields. So the Chinese person who, you know, came to Australia, you know, many of whom went back to China, but also many of whom stayed, are part of Australia. And Chinese Australians and Australians with Chinese heritage are essential to this country, like all the other migrants are here. And you pick this up in the book, this idea that we originally have been very proud of our so-called multiculturalism, but now the infrastructure around multiculturalism and even the discussions about multiculturalism have kind of fallen apart and, and really dissipated. And now we're left with this far more divisive rhetoric. So I wondered when we're thinking about how we actually change things for everyone, um, but particularly for Chinese Australians and, and also Asian Australians, you know, what are the things that we can do as citizens, you know, especially with this election looming and this ever-increasing rhetoric that we don't necessarily have control over in terms of what comes out of the mouth of a politician, what can we do to disrupt the racism that seems to be just constantly building in society here and to make sure that we're doing what we can to ensure that we're using our position of privilege if we are not a member of those groups to actually stop it from happening. I mean, you're quite right about the point of Australia, you know, Chinese Australians. I I think at the height of the gold rush, you know, the percentage of Chinese in Australia was at a point that it didn't get back to until, you know, the 1990s, I think, you know. So there were points in the 19th century when Australia was really quite a culturally quite a Chinese place. Mm, well, they were the second largest ethnic group. Indeed, indeed. So I think that people get a little bit thrown today when they're looking at what's going on and you know, people talking up the China threat, come back with this line, you know, I'm not anti-Chinese, I'm not racist, I'm just anti-CCP. You know, there's nothing wrong with criticizing the Chinese Communist Party. And 
to take that up just for a second, I mean, of course, there's nothing wrong with criticizing the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, I criticize the Chinese Communist Party all the time. You know, I was supportive of the movement in Hong Kong. I still write and talk about the situation in Xinjiang, which is very dire for the Uyghurs there and so on. You know, and people say, well, you know, it's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. You know, this is the same thing. And if, again, I completely agree. It's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. But, you know, my response to that is to say, well, if you were cultivating this discourse that Israel was on the verge of taking control of the Australian political system, that Israel wanted to take over Australia and was using people in Australian society to advance that objective, well, I think pretty soon you would start to see that generating anti-Semitism. And I think in the same way that the way in which the, the inflation of this threat has gone on um, you know, people even talk about China wanting to make territorial claims on Australia. Um, this is something in Clive Hamilton's book. You know, once you set things up in that way, I think it just follows that you're going to get suspicion and animosity towards Chinese Australians. And, and no amount of watching your language, saying, you know, I'm anti-CCP, not, not anti-China, no amount of doing that is going to diminish the paranoia that gets generated. So, you know, so I think if we do really want to hit this on the head, we do have to confront some of those exaggerated claims that are being put forward about the, you know, the degree of influence or control that the Chinese government has in Australian society or economy. You know, I mean, Chinese investment in Australia is actually pretty low um, in comparison to other countries like Britain and, and the United States. I don't think people who are lobbying for the Chinese government are all that effective in gaining entry to the, um, you know, to the halls of power in, in Australia. I mean, if, if particularly when you consider the way politics has gone in the last four or five years, it'd be hard to argue that China is actually having much influence on Australian politics right now. It's going in exactly the opposite direction it would like to see. Now, the thing is, of course, like not everyone is up for this foreign policy discussion. You know, people come to anti-racist politics from, from different directions. Some people just have this sense that people of Chinese background are being picked on, you know, and think, you know, quite legitimately where we need to have more Chinese Australians, you know, in politics, in the media, so on. And, you know, those sorts of issues, like absolutely we should be supporting calls for, for that sort of anti-racist politics. There are, there are groups out there trying to campaign around these issues, responding to hate attacks and, uh, and so on. But I do think that we've got to pull our society and our, our government off this dangerous path that it is going down. I think that all of the old tropes about, you know, Chinese demographic swamping, um, these are all starting to um, you know, starting to emerge again in the culture. Um, you know, I talk in my book about a novel that is, is all about the Chinese government buying the island of Tasmania and removing the white population. And it, it's, it's sort of a, an analogy with the, you know, the actual fate of the indigenous population in Australia. So white Australians are starting to imagine themselves the victims of a colonial genocide of the kind that we inflicted on the, the native population. And I think once that sort of stuff starts to find acceptance in mainstream culture, then, well, the more work we're going to have to have to undo it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that have to stand up in the here and now and, and speak out. And, and I think that, honestly, the more people who are not of Chinese background, 
taking up this stuff, I think the better because then, you know, that just makes it harder for people to pin this as an, some sort of ethnic issue that, that people of Chinese background who might be criticizing the government, that that has something to do with their background, right? That this is uh, reflective of some sentiment that's confined to the, the Chinese Australian community. We don't want that perception to develop. Chinese Australians are the immediate victims of, of a lot of this, but you know, we all stand to lose from this warmongering. Um, you know, we lose in the way that ASIO is empowered with more laws to impinge on our on our civil liberties. We lose when public funding is redirected from health and education to buying missiles and developing military bases. And we all lose when Australia becomes a more angry, xenophobic place. Absolutely, we do lose. And um, I mean, it's really stark at the moment and hopefully things don't progress the way they look like they will. But I think that's true that we do need to keep calling this out and to also not expect that this is something that Chinese Australians should have to go out and do themselves um, to go out and have to defend themselves against these types of ridiculous claims. As you say, it is really concerning for our own democracy and for our own social cohesion. It's kind of a complicity by letting it slide. So Thank you so much, David, for taking the time to chat with us today and to actually get into this in a great deal of depth and nuance. I'm really appreciative of that. And um, I do hope that this has just been a little spark for anyone who's interested in the issue to actually head out and get David's book, China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering, which is out through the Latrobe University Press imprint, and that is put out through Black Ink. So um, you can find that all online. Thank you once again, David, for taking the time to chat with us today. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your contribution to the discussion. Thanks, Amy. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It is great to be with you and it's really great to have someone on the program who is a true expert in an area that I'm very curious about and passionate about. I've got to say I've been getting pretty up and about <laughs> about the uh, John Curtin Hotel and having been someone who studied and lived in Parkville and Carlton for a very long time myself, it has a huge amount of meaning for me personally as I know it does for many people in Melbourne and Victoria and even beyond who've um, you know since moved into state or elsewhere and we've heard about all these stories, personal stories, but also political histories relating back to the John Curtin Hotel, which is, if anyone's wondering and, and not quite sure, it's on 29 Ligon Street in Carlton. And uh, we did see a Facebook post from the Curtin Hotel from the people who are currently leasing the building to say that the lease will be expiring in November and that the current owners of the hotel uh, will be selling it and that at the moment there are a whole range of potential buyers, including a group or consortium of union groups who might be able to pull together the funds, but we're not quite sure yet. And there's also potentially property developers who may well decide that they want to put their hand up and put in the funds for that. And um, we will talk about all of those issues relating back to the Curtin Hotel, but also those 
broader topics around heritage and heritage protections in Victoria through our state planning system. So I welcome Felicity Watson, who is joining me. She's, as I said, from the National Trust, the Victorian branch, and she's the Executive Manager of Advocacy there. So thank you so much, Felicity, for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for having me, Amy. It's great to speak with you. Oh, I'm just so pleased to be able to speak with you. And also, I know that many people have such a high regard for the National Trust because it does do really valuable work. And as someone who's visited the UK, the National Trust in the UK has a, a very significant status in their country. And uh, really, it should have such a high status here in Australia. And obviously, it's uh, powered by a number of volunteers as well as staff. So, it's a very important institution, but it's an institution that does provide advocacy and it provides input into a lot of these broader issues that government considers around heritage and planning and uh, represents the community as well in terms of our views and values, in terms of cultural heritage. So I wanted to um, get into those parts of the discussion a bit later, but start off with the John Curtin Hotel, or as people might colloquially name it, the Curtin. Now, I wonder, were you as shocked as I was when you heard that the Curtin Hotel was being put up for sale and that it could potentially be turned into just another of those apartment block of flats that we've seen and, and potentially be reduced to another example of facadism? Well, I have to say that, sadly, I wasn't shocked uh, because we're seeing this happen all over Melbourne and I've been with the Trust now for nearly nine years and in thinking about this discussion today, I sort of looked back at my time at the Trust and um, there have just been this list of, of pubs that have come under threat and been demolished over the years and have sort of stoked up this discussion that we're having now about the John Curtin Hotel. Um, but I think that some of the systemic issues behind that haven't been addressed. And so it was really, really sad to see that post on Facebook last week and the concerns that um, the operators have about the future of the hotel. And the first thing I did was to look and see if it has heritage protection uh, because I thought, well, this, you know, this is an icon. Melbournians love this place. Um, it's got such a kind of rich cultural history. And I found out that it does have heritage protection in the Melbourne planning scheme. But like many corner pubs in the city of Melbourne and in other parts of Melbourne, the planning rules on that site allow a much bigger development to actually be built there under the current planning rules. And so this is just something that we've seen repeated time and time again across the city and creates this fundamental issue where we know that this place is significant. It has cultural value to the community, but ultimately under the planning controls, it's very, it's really lends itself to redevelopment and is really seen by many investors as a development opportunity. So it's a perfect illustration of this tension that we have happening across the city. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of did the same thing that you did and I went straight to the Victorian Heritage Register 
because I thought surely this is one of our most significant pubs in Melbourne. It was built in around 1860. It was originally named something else. I believe it was like the Ligon Hotel. (laughs) Some might say its architectural heritage is less significant potentially than its social or political heritage or, or significance. But I did see that it is in part of the heritage overlay, as they say, and that it was graded D2 in the June 2016 Heritage Places Inventory. So it's it's kind of been assessed at various points in the past uh, five to six years, but it clearly hasn't been deemed to be so significant that it's on the Victorian Heritage Register, which does seem to afford it greater protection. So I wonder... You know, what is this um, difference that exists between the Heritage Register and being deemed a significant building under that versus having some kind of heritage overlay applied over planning permits? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it can be a really impenetrable system and really confusing to people who aren't familiar with it, which in turn makes it more difficult to protect places that are significant. Um, But essentially, we've got two systems of heritage protection in Victoria. So we've got the most significant places in Victoria are protected through the Victorian Heritage Register, which is under state legislation. And there are about 2,500 places across Victoria on that register. But the majority of heritage places, um, probably more than 200,000 places across the state, are protected in under local heritage overlays. And all councils in Victoria have a responsibility under Victorian law to identify and protect um, their significant heritage places in their areas. So the City of Melbourne is an example where there are lots of places that are locally protected. But what you've kind of flagged is that while it has heritage overlay protection, it doesn't necessarily have a higher level of protection. And I think one of the reasons for that is that historically heritage protection has focused a lot more on architectural significance and aesthetic significance than cultural values like social significance and the political significance that you've been talking about. And that is, it's slowly starting to shift and councils and the state government are beginning to realise that it's just as important to protect places that are really valued by our community for social reasons and, you know, places that have been meeting places for many, many years. But it's sort of been slow to take shape and I was pleased to see that the City of Melbourne is already looking at upgrading the protection for the Curtin Hotel as part of a current heritage study they're doing. And it's actually really interesting there looking at a whole precinct around the trades hall area of pubs and other buildings that have a historically significant relationship to trades hall. So they're already looking at, you know, some of the things that have been discussed over the past week and some of the reasons why people value that place. But the the point about it not having state protection is an important one. I think there is a really strong case to be made that this pub does have 
a really extraordinary social history that, you know, elevates it above lots of other places in Victoria. And um, that's certainly something that we're really interested in looking at. Um, but I think that one of the challenges in all of this is that often these gaps in protection aren't identified until there is a threat. And then that kind of puts the pressure on in terms of, you know, timing to address these issues and undertake those assessments. Um, but it also impacts on the owners of the building and potential owners as well. So ideally we would have a really, um, you know, thorough and a thorough process of maintaining these registers proactively. Um, but the reality is that sometimes these gaps only start to show when there's an imminent threat. Mm. Well, I mean, when I first heard of this, my first thought was, isn't anything sacred? Because, yes. you know, like, it, it was beyond my wildest imaginings that this particular hotel could be under threat. And as you say, we just don't expect it. Something comes left of centre and, you know, it's taken us by surprise in the type of building it is because of its particularly social and cultural significance that you say. Like, obviously, every pub that is old in Melbourne, you know, has some degree of personal significance to the people who go there because it's a public meeting place. It's somewhere where we have our own stories and personal histories. But as we've all seen in the news recently, you know, the Curtin Hotel is tied very closely to the union movement, to the Australian Labor Party, uh, to figures like John Curtin, former Labor Prime Minister, who it's named after, although also particularly Bob Hawke uh, being the, the most clear and obvious connection to the Curtin Hotel, where, as we've heard, you know, during the 1970s when he was head of the ACTU, he would head to that hotel, strike deals at the back of the bar, you know, essentially use it as an office really for doing business in politics and in the union movement. And this is, you know, the 70s are a, were, were a different time, <laughs> clearly. But, uh, you know, it has still got significance for the Labor Party today, as we saw when Bob Hawke passed away. And, you know, all of these uh, Labor leaders and Labor figures went back to the Curtin Hotel as a pilgrimage to Bob Hawke. So, you know, that's just one slice of the political significance that the pub has, the historical significance. But, you know, it also, pubs do have this, as you say, social significance to individuals, not just to politicians and, and union members. Have you heard some of the stories that people have been saying about, you know, why, why they think the Curtin Hotel is significant and, you know, what do you think of their stories? Do you think it would become a kind of compelling compendium for a state government assessing its significance at that social value level? Absolutely. I have just been loving reading all of the comments on the petitions that are happening and also the anecdotes that are coming out as part of the media coverage of this. It's just extraordinary to think the relationships that would have been formed there and the decisions that would have been made and the discussions that would have been had. And no matter where you sit on the political spectrum, I think, you know, it's clearly really important to recognise the places and spaces that shape our world and, and our lives. And I think that all of these anecdotes and and stories really add up to a really rich 
understanding of that place's history and it's exactly the kind of information that we would want to look at as part of an assessment of social significance and assessing social significance can be challenging because it's a lot more, um, it, it could be seen to be a lot more subjective than, you know, assessing the architectural significance of a building, say, where you can compare it against other types, other buildings of that that same type. But I think it's clear that this place is really extraordinary. And what's so interesting about it for me, um, coming from a history background, is that a lot of the people who, you know, would have been knocking around there in the 70s and, you know, working with Bob Hawke and part of the trade union movement then would still be alive and still be able to contribute stories to to understand the significance of, of the place. Yeah, absolutely would. And and that is something which is really, yeah, interesting. And I've heard interviews with the person who is pushing for the union movement to buy the John Curtin Hotel, Luke Hilakari, who is a secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council. And he said last week that he was gathering together a number of heads of the union movement uh, in order to see if they could pull together the funds. And at the moment, the real estate agents had suggested that the cost for the pub would be $6 million potentially, which is clearly, you know, a decent amount of money for any group to, to come up with. And so, you know, this means that we are in the territory of property developer land where they have far more accessibility to these kind of funds and would see the potential for it turning into a development that they could make money out of, a, a residential development. Thinking about that and I guess the urgency then of the situation given that the sale is going to take place fairly soon, it's it's now up for sale, there are advertisements, I've read an article already on a property publication advertising it, talking about the strong interest from property aggregators and developers. So, you know, it's, it's being talked up a lot. What is the process for trying to get this type of building and in particular the Curtin Hotel onto the Victorian Heritage Register? Is this something that can be done before it's sold or is it something that would potentially fall outside that time frame? Well, I guess something I'd like to go back to first is just what could heritage protection achieve? Mm. And I think there's a fundamental problem with the way that we protect heritage in Victoria, which is the same as most places across Australia. It's definitely not just a problem that we have here. But heritage protection can protect the fabric of a building. It can protect the bricks and mortar. In particular, it's geared to protect the facades of buildings and what is visible from the street and in the public realm. But it can't protect the use of a building. So that's really the fundamental issue with the sale of a building like this, is that even if it was to be added to the Victorian Heritage Register, say, that may not protect its ongoing use as a pub. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is that under our planning laws, heritage protection isn't able to specifically protect the ongoing use of a place. But 
it's also quite challenging to get protection of interiors of buildings. So currently um, the building's protected by the City of Melbourne under their heritage overlay, but that only protects the outside of the building. So something that, you know, would be worth looking at is whether the interior of the building can be protected so that that layout can continue and therefore provides the possibility of that being used as a pub in an ongoing way. Um, But that can be quite challenging to achieve. And the best example of that, and it's one that still makes me really angry, actually, every time I walk past it and, you know, the issues haven't really been resolved since that happened, but the demolition of the Palace Theatre on Burke Street And, you know, that was another example of an incredibly strong public campaign to save a building that was a theatre and had been used for more than 100 years as a performance space um, and was really valued by the community. But only the exterior of the building had any kind of protection whatsoever. So the ultimate outcome has been that the building's been gutted and demolished and only the facade has been incorporated into the new development on that site. And that just is really the least significant thing about that building. Mm. Um, And it just shows how our heritage protections can be a real blunt instrument in terms of actually protecting what we care about. So... In terms of maintaining that ongoing use, I think that the best, you know, outcome would be for a consortium or, you know, developer that intended to continue that public use of the building um, to purchase the building. But the National Trust is also looking at other mechanisms that could be introduced to address this issue. So as part of our uh, submission to a current parliamentary inquiry into heritage protections, we're looking at a model that's used in the UK to identify assets of community value that then have an additional layer of protection placed on them in the event that they come up for sale. And pubs are the most common building to be registered on lists of assets of community values in the UK. So it's clearly an issue that has been explored elsewhere and I think we need to look at some new solutions. It does sound like we do. It sounds like we're stuck in a very outdated and not useful way of doing things, especially in this example where, as you say, it's a pub, it's also a live music venue. So it's a place where you can't reside in a live music venue. So we do need to be able to protect its function as a a live music venue as much as it is a pub and a, a place where we might go to have a beer, for example, and, you know, meet up after uni. So, you know, this is something which is surprising to me, but then not, as as you've kind of intimated, is that we see this keep happening. So, you know, even, uh, for example, the Corkman Hotel, that's something which is a bit different in the sense that it was demolished before it was supposed to be. But there's a similar level of investment and outrage and 
anger about the protection of a pub that has social value to, you know, for example, the law students at the the law building at Melbourne University. And, you know, I know John Clark used to love going to the Corkman Hotel and had uh, many, many good memories there. So, you know, there are many ways that the community can deem something to be significant, as you say. And it's really interesting that you said that the UK is a good model that we could actually look to, given how much their society is built around their pub culture. It kind of goes without saying. But I wonder, just to kind of close out this conversation, you know, if we think about the way then that we can protect its function, it clearly is about ensuring that the community might be able to purchase it, whether it is through the union movement or through a different group or a combination of groups pulling together. How likely do you think it is that something like that could be achieved? Do you feel that there is enough of a groundswell and a grassroots movement to push this campaign over the line? Yeah, I definitely think that there is a lot of strength in the campaign and, you know, the outpouring of sentiment and, you know, concern that we've seen in just a week since we found out that the building was going to be for sale. So I hope we can continue that momentum. I would encourage people to sign any petitions that are going around online. Um, I think there are a couple that are up at the moment to demonstrate their support because the more public demonstration of community support, the better, because that sends a message to prospective buyers um, and to decision makers like the council and the state government. Yeah, and I know that this is something which many people listening will want to do, so I'll share those petitions on our social media so you can jump in on it and uh, understand it more. I did, being a typical history person, went to Trove as soon as I heard about the curtain and found that uh, in 1976 there was an article saying that the unions were set to buy the John Curtin Hotel. Oh. <laughs> for about $500,000 and the purchase price was backed by 15 unions and the ACTU had that financial support for the project uh, but it was set to need approval from the executives. So I was kind of amazed that history was now repeating yep. itself years later. Clearly that sale didn't go through. I was very intrigued to to find out the circumstances of it but um, yeah, it was just a, a really interesting that we've come full circle. <laughs> Yeah, let's not make that mistake again. Yeah, let's fix things and uh, not go back to 1976. And, yeah, um, yeah I, I do recommend people to check out your great advocacy, Felicity, and the submission that the National Trust has made, which I know you've had a big hand in, to the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry into Heritage Protections, because I know they're going to be having hearings and this issue is going to be very much ongoing. So thank you for all the advocacy you're doing. And, you know, the community, I'm sure, would love to support support the National Trust and, you know, be part of your advocacy as well. So we appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I've just been chatting with Felicity Watson. She is Executive Manager of Advocacy at the National Trust of Australia in Victoria. And uh, Felicity, as I said, is doing really great work. You can also, I should say, find Felicity on Twitter and Instagram. And I'll share all the information, as I said, about the Curtin Hotel and the petitions that are currently going around. Please, 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 if you care about the Curtin, voice your concerns. This is something which really does affect everyone here and uh, yeah I just feel really so passionately about it so it's really great to hear from voices like Felicity's. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.